um, so I hope that you will, you will consider that. We're going to be in our Bibles today. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Exodus, <coughs> uh, Exodus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, my name's Clint Clifton. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new uh, around here, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Um, I, I want to give just one more plug and announcement before we launch into uh, studying the text today. Um, <clears throat> on January the 8th, which is a Saturday, uh, we're going to be doing a thing we've never done before called Pillar on Mission. Every year we go on summer mission trips and we support um, some of our workers internationally, some of the church planters we've sent to other places. Um, and this year, what we're actually going to do is coordinate our efforts between three of the four pillar churches in our region. Actually, those churches and our Hispanic Fellowship, I IBGE. And so we're going to coordinate for all of us uh, to bring all of our mission projects together. And then we're going we're gonna to go uh, put sort of all of our collection of members together and then, and then go serve. So you may be actually serving on a project that's related to one of the other churches or church plants. So we're going we're gonna to kind of consolidate our efforts in that regard. We're going to do training together and equipping together and some fundraising together uh, for that. So that's the Pillar on Mission Banquet. It is taking place in this room on January 8th at 6.30 p.m., and you may say, uh, that doesn't sound very good. Well, two things to tell you that will draw you here if you're not compelled by the mission component of it. Number one, we're having tacos. So everybody loves tacos. You're gonna come in, and we're just gonna provide you an endless buffet of tacos. So you're gonna wanna be here for that. The second thing, the second reason you're definitely gonna wanna be here, because for the first time in Pillar history, there is going to be an elder band. We are going uh, to have a band on this stage playing completely made of elders from our churches, which is sure to be really funny because uh, uh, if we are musicians, we're very, very rusty musicians. Uh, so we're going to have a band made up totally of elders. We're going to pl be playing some old school music kind of from our eras. And so you're going to want to be here to see the elder band fall on their faces in front of everyone. Okay, we are now to um, Exodus chapter 2. Let's go back there. Exodus chapter 2. Let me read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levi woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child. He, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from, uh, she took for him a basket made of uh, bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch and she put him the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the riverbank and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside her beside the river she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent a servant woman, and she took it. She opened it, and she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and 
Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Uh, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we trust you. Holy Spirit, we need you. As we look to your word today and we try to understand what it is that you're trying to teach us through the story of Moses' birth, God, would you teach us today? Would you help us to grow in you, to understand you, to increase our amount of faith in you? God, would you use this short time of dedicated focus on your word to shape us, to be the kinds of people you long for us to be. Lord, we want to please you, but every day we are, our, our, our schedules are full of things that distract us from focus on you. But this morning we've come here with nothing else to do. We've dedicated a, a few hours of our time to focus on studying your word, God. So as we focus, meet us, Lord. Teach us, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know what phrase I hate? Uh, I I hate the phrase, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. Because, in fact, when somebody says that to me, you can't miss it, uh, I usually say back to them, oh, no, I assure you, I I can miss it. (laughs) My life is a long series of of misunderstood directions, of passed-by exits. If you, if you don't know me very well, and you were to get to know me, you'd probably notice this about me pretty quickly. It's one of the surprising things. You think, oh, pastor's probably got his act together in regard to things uh, that are sort of administrative in nature or detail. He's probably pretty detail-oriented. He likes the Bible. He likes to study the Bible. Well, you'd just be surprised if you got to know me. that Those things uh, aren't true. I have to work really hard at details. And I grew up in the South, and in the South, you know, they have uh, quippy phrases for things like this. And so I grew up in the South, and, and there, uh, if you have a temperament like mine, you hear things like, you can't miss it. Or you hear, um, if it had been a snake, it would have bitten you. You know, that's, the, that's a phrase I heard a lot growing up. Um, and and there's, also, um, there's also the phrase that I heard a lot, both on the ball field and off the ball field. You couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, you know, that one. Uh, so so the, uh, for this Advent season this year, we're going to look at some Old Testament birth narratives just like we did last week, in their connection to Jesus. Now, this week I've been working on my, my uh, British accent, and it didn't, it, didn't, uh, it didn't come through this week very good, so I'm not going to try to do that, though last week was really powerful, both uh, because of his accent and because of his teaching. Um, but um, but uh, as, we're, as we're looking at these Old Testament birth narratives, um, I, I think they're, they're intended to sort of say to us, you can't miss Jesus. You can't miss him. He's, he's, he's there in the Old Testament. You just have to have your eyes open. You have to be paying attention in order to see him. The Bible may seem complex at first, but, but you'll find as you familiarize yourself with the Bible that it has a pretty simple storyline. Slay the dragon, get the girl would be a way to summarize it. This is the storyline of the Bible. Jesus is the hero Satan's the dragon, and you and I, we are the bride of Christ. We're the damsel in distress. And God has baked into both the historical narrative of the Old Testament 
and the symbolism of the Old Testament, not just clues or indicators or signs, but even explicit descriptions and directions to help us to recognize Jesus Christ as the solution to the dragon problem we're all facing. Uh, last week, we were talking about Christmas in our household uh, with our kids, and I asked my kids a question, do you understand the difference between Judaism and Christianity? And they talked back and forth a little bit and basically came up with the simple idea, the difference in Judaism and Christianity is what we believe about Jesus, is what we believe about Jesus Christ. Is he the Messiah? Christians say yes. Is he the Messiah? Jews say no. He's not the Messiah. And so these clues that are in the Old Testament, they're intended for us to be able to look at them and then look at Jesus and say, for sure, Jesus is the Messiah that God had promised. Let me say this uh, another way. If you want to understand the relationship between the Old Testament in the Bible and the New Testament, here's a, a way to do that that I think will help you. In the Old Testament, you read promises made by God, and in the New Testament, you'll read promises fulfilled by God. Promises kept in the Old Testament, or promises made, sorry, in the Old Testament, and promises kept in the New Testament. That's a really simple look at the Testaments of the Bible. So when you're reading the Bible and you come across a prophecy in the Old Testament, you're reading a promise that God's making. And when you're reading the events of the New Testament, you're not just reading a random series of things that happened, you're, you're not just uh, reading an interesting story about a miracle man and his band of merry misfits. No, you're reading promises that have been kept, that were told of old. You're part of the story. Imagine you're walking down the street one day and you happen upon a magic show on the street. And you haven't seen the magician's whole trick. You just walk up at the end of it and you, as you approach you see a woman from the crowd draw a card out of the magician's deck and it's an ace of spades. Big deal. It's an ace of spades. Well, when the magician pulls out of his pocket a piece of paper and opens it up and passes it around the crowd that says, Ace of Spades, then you go, wow, that's amazing. That's what the Old Testament does for us in the Bible. It shows us that God knew what would happen. Not only did he knew what would happen, but he pur purposed it for us. Promises made and promises kept. And last week we learned about the miraculous birth, uh, birth of Isaac to his geriatric parents, remember, promise made way earlier and promise kept to Abraham and Sarah. And pa Pastor Anthony showed us how the long-awaited baby Isaac was a foreshadow of Jesus to us. And, and today we're going to turn our attention to the birth of Moses. So let's, uh, looking at Exodus uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 that we just read, I just want to pull out a few things from that passage for us to contemplate and consider as we look at Jesus Christ and the purposes that God has in his story for us to understand. Now, the first thing, th this story that we pick up on in chapter 2 launches right into a, a sort of complex set of circumstances, which if you've been a part of the church for a long time or a church for a long time, you probably kind of understand the context. But let me assume that some of you don't understand the context and just give you a quick rundown of the scenario. The book of Exodus is the story of a nation, the nation of Israel, the people of God, the Hebrew people, and they had been taken as slaves to Egypt. Now, 
this Egyptian, the story of Exodus is the story of them leaving Egypt and, and getting freed from that enslavement that they'd been a part of. Keep in mind that at the time of this story where we land in Exodus chapter 2, the beginning of the story of the exit from Egypt, keep in mind that this story and these Hebrew people had been dealing with this slavery. They'd been a part of this slavery for about 400 years at that point. Now, today, uh, the United States is 244 years old. They, uh, uh, they were generational slaves for nearly twice as long as we've been a nation. So nobody who lived in this time in Egypt had ever met anybody or anybody's grandfather who lived at the time they became slaves. All they knew was slavery. They'd been slaves for generations and generations. And they'd been slaves so long that the, the, the Pharaoh perhaps at that time is the most, you know, politically powerful person in the world he, he had begun growing paranoid about the increasing population and the increasing strength of the Hebrew people. They were rivaling the size of the Egyptian population. And so as these slaves began to become comfortable in their slavery over generations and generations, they began to even thrive in, in it and, and, and grow as a people. And the Hebrew slaves attempted... Uh, or, or, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Egyptians attempted to remedy this problem by having Hebrew midwives who gave birth to the children, uh, two particular ones, Sifra and Pua, to kill Hebrew boys upon their birth. As they are born, the, the Pharaoh commanded these Hebrew midwives to kill the, the boys. So I'm just going to read a section of that for you. So let's read, this is in... Ephesians, or not Ephesians, Jesus, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus this is uh, Exodus, sorry, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. <clears throat> uh, it says, when you, were, uh, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women uh, and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they didn't do as the Egyptian king had commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why why have you done this? And and let these male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous in their childbirth, and they give birth to these children before the midwives can even reach them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. It's just an interesting anecdote that God blessed these midwives and their faith by giving them themselves children. It's so interesting. Then, verse 22, the Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he goes a step further and empowers all Egyptians If you see any male Hebrew babies, just throw them in the river. So this is the context of the story. When we we, uh, arrive at um, Exodus, not Ephesians, Exodus chapter 2, we we arrive at this scenario. And so three things I want you to notice. Number one, these are, are, remember, we're trying to learn about what we can uh, pick up from Jesus in the Advent and the story of our Messiah's birth from these Old Testament birth narratives. Number one, 
I want you to see that both Jesus and Moses were born to deliver God's people. That was their primary purpose. Moses and Jesus were born to lead God's people out of slavery, out of captivity. Moses led the Israelites out of physical bondage and slavery in Egypt, and Jesus led God's elect out of spiritual bondage and slavery to sin. Consider um, the future of these two little babies, Moses and Jesus, boldly contending for God's people, each of them. Moses uh, before Pharaoh, demanding, let my people go. You remember just prior to the plagues and even in the midst of the plagues, if you're familiar with those stories in like Exodus chapter 5 and beyond, you, you see that, that uh, Moses boldly stood before the Pharaoh demanding that God's people be released. And Jesus similarly preaches freedom for the captives and the prisoners. He says actually in Luke chapter 4 that he's come to set the oppressed free. His purpose, in part, is to, to set those who were under the yoke of slavery free. Moses bringing the law of God and Jesus Christ bringing the law of the Spirit given to set us free from the law of sin and death. So you see how they play this, this role of captivity releasing, both of them. Both of these babies born to deliver God's people. Moses, a Hebrew child, was born a slave in Egypt, and Jesus, a Hebrew child, fled to Egypt when he was born. This is so interesting to me. Consider the irony of this one situation. You, you may remember, we read about in uh, the book of Matthew, I think it's Matthew chapter 2, we read about in Matthew chapter 2 how when Jesus is born, Joseph is visited by an angel and told to, to flee because Herod is trying to kill him. And where does he flee to? He flees to Egypt. Soon after the visit of the Magi, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream telling him to go to Egypt. He tells him to go to that specific place, which seems totally random in the New Testament if you're reading the New Testament alone. But if you're reading the Old Testament, it doesn't seem random at all. Because, because the, the, the deliverer of the Hebrew people, the person known to deliver the Hebrew people, this is where he lived. This is where he delivered God's people. It seems random. Egypt, why Egypt? But Jesus is going to Egypt, I'm convinced, at least in part, to show us that Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. That the, the, the setting for both of their deliverances would, would base in the same place. The late, great uh, songwriter Rich Mullins put this irony in a song called my Deliverer. It's a really fascinating song if you're familiar with it. If not, I would encourage you to go check it out on YouTube. But uh, Rich Mullins wrote these words. He said, Joseph took his wife and his child and they went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. And there along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song that the captive children used to sing. They were singing, My Deliverer is Coming. My deliverer is standing by. Just that picture of little Jesus <laughs> in Egypt, listening to Hebrew children singing, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is standing by, is a powerful image. So, so that's, that's one thing I want you to see, that both of these 
were intended to be deliverers of God's people, both Jesus and Moses. And so in that way, Moses was a type of Jesus, or Jesus is a better Moses, hearkening back to our, our Hebrews series. So uh, also a thing to notice, this isn't one of my points here, but just a thing to notice here uh, anecdotally is that uh, the political circumstances of the situation didn't, didn't neutralize those who trusted in God from building families. The Hebrew people continued about their lives. They continued being married, as verse 1 tells us. A, 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 a man from the tribe of Levi married a woman from the tribe of Levi, and they had a child. In the midst of this awful political situation, they continued to operate their lives normally and in faith. And I think that is, that's a, a lesson for us today, too, as we, as we can consider the political situations we find ourselves in and the political unrest we find ourselves in. I often hear people giving the sentiment, particularly young couples, I don't know if I want to bring kids into this kind of world. And, and though I get that sentiment and I understand that sentiment, the truth is God works in, in peaceful and prosperous scenarios and situations, and God works sometimes even more powerfully in difficult and oppressive political situations. Number two, next thing I want you to notice about the connection between Jesus and Moses is that they both narrowly escaped murder as infants. This isn't something we can say about most infants. Most uh, murderers aren't after little helpless babies. But both Moses and Jesus' parents found themselves evading the political authorities in order to protect their children from murder by none other than the kings themselves. They both were hidden babies because the leaders of the time wanted them dead. Pharaoh ordered all Hebrew males to be murdered to control the growth of the population. When he was uh, three months old, mother, Moses' mother puts him in a basket, just as we read, in the, in the Nile River. And, and when he was found and he was adopted by the daughter of a pharaoh. And then King Herod feared the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, Jesus, and ordered all boys to be killed in Bethlehem. But notice how God's purposes prevailed in both situations. The kings thought they were managing the situation, but God always had a purpose that would prevail, no matter what. This is a lesson for you and I. We, we can't outmaneuver God's purposes in our lives. There's no way that we can come up with something, a scheme, tricky enough or shrewd enough that would maneuver beyond the purposes and plans of God's in our, God in our life. King Herod feared the prophecies of Jesus' birth. He tried to hold on to his own power, but when God decided what would happen, there was no interrupting it. King Herod feared these prophecies of Jesus' birth, and he ordered all boys under the age of two to be killed as, a, as an extreme way of ensuring the Messiah couldn't be born, and it did nothing but accentuate the power of Jesus' birth. Jesus' parents fled to Egypt until Herod had died. We read about that in Matthew chapter 2. Consider this irony of baby Jesus narrowly escaping the murder of a cruel king in the very place where Moses miraculously escaped the murder of a cruel king before setting God's people free from captivity, the both of them. Boy, isn't this a picture of the Jesus that we serve, love, and worship? 
And, and the third thing I want you to see it, uh, uh, as we consider the birth narratives of Jesus and Moses is that they were uh, both adopted royalty. They were both adopted royalty. Moses was adopted from a slave family into a royal family. Jesus, the son of the Most High, uh, and we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. We're, we're told that Jesus reigns above all earthly kings and kingdoms. He lords over all earthly lords. And we see even in Revelation 19, 16, that he took on human flesh and he became an adopted son of a meek couple, Mary and Joseph. So both of them had adoption in their stories. Both of them had royalty in their stories. Uh, verse 3 says in the text that we're reading today or looking at today, verse 3 says, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for, uh, she took for him a basket and made, uh, made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. All of the incredible ironies that happened here, that the sister kind of watching from a distance and then having the, 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 um, the mind to say, to, and the boldness to say uh, to the, the princess, um, would you like for me to go find? And then for actually to go and find, to go and bring back mom and to have her, the text tells us that she was actually paid to watch her own kid. This is, this is amazing. Like the whole irony of the whole thing, it just reminds us that God's purposes always, always prevail. I, th I think it's interesting too that, <coughs> you know, we think about things in very stark terms of black and white, but God often rises, raises up friends for his people, even among their enemies. Isn't it interesting how in this situation, God raised up a friend to the purposes of God? in the midst of the worst kind of enemy. I mean, this particular woman, uh, who uh, I won't go into all the details, but we, we know some about her from Egyptian history and from the early church historian Josephus, uh, and I won't even attempt to butcher her name for you, but um, she, she's a fascinating woman. She, she actually was one of the most prominent women in Egyptian history. And she... Um, <coughs> she uh, she exhibited kind of uh, very forceful leadership in Egyptian history, so much so that she eventually became like um, a co-pharaoh of her time, and she was leading uh, in, in the future. There, Actually, some of the depictions of her, the Egyptian depictions of her, show her wearing a beard uh, to, uh, as to look and take on male characteristics so people would respect and follow her. Uh, which is which is really interesting. So she she exhibited like this early leadership, and even the providence of God wound up in that for a woman to have the boldness to see something like that in a time where all the headship of of uh, Egypt would have been male, for her to have the boldness to say, "Bring that child to me, and bring that child back to me, and I'll raise that child." is is incredible. It's all wound up in even the temperament and the personhood of that woman that God created for his own purposes, even among the enemies of God. God raises up friends for his people among their enemies, and he controls the waters as they flow. 
Notice uh, uh, in verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe in the river while the young women walked beside her and he saw the basket among the reeds and he sent a servant woman to take it and she opened it and she saw the child and behold the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Even the fact that she took pity on him, all of these are parts of the purposes of God. The unlikeliness of the situation just is so striking as I as I mentioned to you just a few uh, moments earlier. So th- the, this woman, before she uh, rose to power, she just happened to be walking along the Nile one day or swimming or bathing in the Nile, and she just happened to notice the basket among the reeds, and she just happened to show compassion on the baby she found inside. Of course, I'm using just happened in jest. It wasn't just happened. God purposed all of these things. And, and reading this story and seeing... Uh, the purposes behind the circumstances behind uh, Moses' birth and behind Jesus' birth should give us total confidence in God's ability to command the circumstances of our life when they feel out of control. All of this was part of God's purposes. For baby Moses, it would, grow up, uh, it would be for him to grow up in the household of the Pharaoh in order that he might save his people from slavery. He would become their deliverer. He would come in the most unlikely of ways. As we read about his sister walking along. And so the girl went and she called in verse 8. She called the child's mother. The purposes of God in that. That she followed along and she was there. And she spoke boldly. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me and then bring him back. I get the, I get the idea there that that's just not for the afternoon. That it's like, take this child and get him to pass the rough phase, the phase where I have to take care of him all the time, and then bring him back to me. That's how I read it, maybe just my interpretation. Uh, But there seems to be some period of time there that she gets actually compensated to take care of this child. And then the integrity to bring her back, understanding the purposes of God would prevail. You see, when we have circumstances in our life that seem out of control and we see God meet those circumstances with his purposes and his plans, it instills in us confidence that we can trust God in the future. Faith begets faith. I've I've told you that before, and I believe that is so true in my own life. If I have tested the Lord and I have seen him to be faithful, I have had more confidence to test him and trust him along the way in the future. And, And if you're a person who has a difficult time trusting in the Lord or having faith in God, if you have, uh, have uh, anxiety when it, it comes to the idea of entrusting large uh, you know, s- components of your life to God for his purposes, uh, I, I hope that you would test him and see that his purposes are good for you and that they prevail. That the word, as it teaches us that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, prevail in your life and in your circumstances, not only will you begin to trust him more in your own life as you see your faith in God delivered in blessings from God, but you'll be able to commend faith in God to others who are weaker around you. In verse 10, when the child grew old, older, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter and, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The connections between Moses and Jesus don't just stop in the birth narrative. They go on for a long, long time. And we don't have time or, I mean, we could probably do an entire series on the incredible connections between Moses' life and Jesus' life. 
but let me just give you a few snippets, and th- this will resonate most with those of you who know the story of Moses sort of from start to finish, um, and, and hopefully for those of you who don't, it'll compel you to get into the Word and learn a bit more about Moses. So in, in one of Moses' final speeches, Moses actually gives a messianic prophecy. Remember I told you the Old Testament's prophecies made, the New Testament's prophecies kept, uh, or promises kept? Well, in, in the Old Testament, Moses actually, in one of his final speeches of his life, he gives a messianic prophecy, and the messianic prophecy is this. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. He's referring to Jesus. So Moses himself, recognizing himself as a prophet, tells the people of Israel that from me later is coming another prophet who's greater than me, and you should listen to him. That's Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses was both a prophet and a lawgiver, and Jesus is too. Jesus was a prophet who spoke the word of God. We know that that, uh, Jesus was regarded as a prophet in his day. We know that Moses was regarded as a prophet in his day, and he gave commandments to his followers to obey. So this is the same. Moses goes up and receives the commandments from God on Mount Sinai, and Jesus brings commandments to his followers from God as well. Both Moses and Jesus uh, meditate, uh, uh, I'm sorry, mediated a covenant between God and man. They both, they both found themselves to be intermediaries between God and man. You remember the image of Moses going up onto the mountain and, and interacting with God and coming down and interacting with God's people and him being a mediator between God and man. Both Moses and Jesus played that role. Jesus plays the role even today for us, interceding for us before the Father, giving, giving a correction to our utterance before it reaches the ears of God. Jesus is uh, the mediator between God and man. He's the bridge between God and man. And Moses played a surrogate role of mediation between God and man in the Old Testament. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd after there was uh, an event that happened where uh, Moses uh, defended his people and ended up murdering another Egyptian or an Egyptian. And then he ran away, fearing he would be caught and punished. He ran away as a coward into the wilderness and became a shepherd for 40 years. And Jesus is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And so uh, they were both known for their meekness. Jesus and Moses, a characteristic that isn't found among many uh, Old or New Testament leaders. They're both mo- known for their meekness. Both Joseph, uh, Moses and Jesus were known uh, for living meek and humble lives. Moses was also like Jesus in that he performed miracles. Not all prophets performed miracles, but Moses was a miracle-performing prophet. Several of the miracles of Moses bear resemblance to the to the miracles that Jesus does in the New Testament. Particularly, uh, we have Moses uh, uh, striking the rock and water flowing from it. We have Jesus, water flowing from his side. We have the provision of bread in the wilderness that Moses had in Exodus 16, of manna from heaven, and the comparable feeding of the 5,000 from Jesus. We see that they were both intermediaries of God who provided bread of life, which uh, which so we see these incredible comparisons between the two. In fact, after Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, the people's uh, thoughts ran immediately to Moses's prophecy 
After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, this is John chapter 6, surely this is a prophet who's come into the world, reminding them of the bread provided by Moses. So there are so many correlations between these two lives that we can see. Moses, the prince of Egypt, and Jesus, the prince of peace. Moses, the lawgiver, and Jesus, the love giver. Uh, Jesus uh, spending 40 days and nights in the wilderness, and Moses uh, spending 40 years wandering in the desert. Moses leads his people to the promised land, and Jesus leads his people to heaven. Moses is the shepherd of Sinai, and, and Jesus the shepherd of souls. Moses crossing the Red Sea to free people from slavery. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan to free us from sin. There are so many correlations. We've just touched the tip of the iceberg between these two. What I want you to see is that Moses was given to us in the Old Testament as a big billboard to point us to the Jesus of the New Testament. A pastor in our area um, named David Schrock uh, of Occoquan Bible Church, some of you may be familiar with him, he, he wrote a fantastically good article on this subject on the Gospel Coalition website. Perhaps you would want to Google that. Uh, if you're interested in this subject, but he wrote a great article on this on the Gospel Coalition website, and he says in that article, he says, Jesus would do more than bring the message from God as a prophet. He would bring God to his people and his people to God. You see, Jesus did more than Moses, that he actually didn't just bring the message of God to God's people, but he brought God to God's people. Jesus does more, he says, than simply, simply reveal truths from God he is God made flesh. Let me pray. God, we see these things today. We read these truths about you, and we see the correspondence and the correlation between you and Moses, and, and we consider the intricate purposes that you have in our salvation. We see that it wasn't just a, a response to a circumstance that caught you off guard, but before the foundations of the world, you purposed to rescue your people. In all of, all of history, in all of the prophets, in all of the promises, serve us by showing us and giving us confidence that we can see you, Jesus, the sacrificed Messiah, and have confidence that you are savior of the world so lord jesus we're here today in this modern time with all sorts of things going on around us and and we have to make a choice too do we believe you do we trust you god moses gives us confidence the story of moses gives us confidence that you are who you say you are that your word is true that that jesus is your promised Messiah, God, we want you to hear from us today that we trust you. We believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, who you said he was, and we trust in you with all of our hearts today. We love Jesus because he first loved us. We love you, O oh God, because you sent him to die for us in our place for our sins. And as we consider this Christmas time, all the ways in which we have fallen short of pleasing you and loving you, Jesus gives us confidence that we can be born again, that we can live lives 
that please you even though we can't live in a pleasing way all the time. So Jesus, we receive, we accept from you the offer that you give to us, salvation. The offer you give to us to cover over our sin with your own righteousness. We accept that, O oh Jesus, and we, we will live in a way to the best of our ability that displays to the world that we are not good, but we are served and saved by a very good and loving God. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us. Help us to love you, to live in that truth more regularly. You are here today, you're here this morning, and you do not love and serve Christ. You don't believe that he is the Messiah. You haven't believed that in the past, and you're beginning to question that. We so want you to know that Jesus is the answer to all of the, the difficulty in your life, and he is the answer for your eternity. So, Lord Jesus, for those of uh, those folks who are here today who, who doubt you, God, would you speak to them today? Would you give them confidence that your word is true and that they can trust you with their whole hearts and lives? We ask, oh God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, 